On today's special episode of Vitality Radio, I get to uh, interview someone who I have been listening to for years on the topics of health freedom in kind of all of the different areas that health freedom uh, is, well, I'll say under assault uh, in our country. And uh, his name is Del Bigtree. Del, welcome to Vitality Radio. Jared, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely happy to have you. I know you're a crazy busy man, so we'll get right down to it. But I do want to make sure I know there are still some people out there that don't know who you are or what you're doing. So if you don't mind uh, introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do with ICANN. Sure. So um, I started out really in television. I uh, was a producer first for the Dr. Phil show on CBS. Dr. Phil and his son created the show The Doctors, which was a medical talk show with four hosts. Um, I worked on that for six years. I actually was one of the producers that sort of helped in the development of that show. Uh, and I won an Emmy Award uh, with The Doctors. And so I, I really got, fell into this unique niche of turning science and medicine into television um, and helping the masses understand medical issues. And so it was a, it was a great job. Uh, I would say there was seven producers on the show, like each one of us would do a whole show, you know, imagine, you know, five shows a week, and then you have to fill up the whole season. Um, I was one of the more controversial uh, producers, just behind the scenes. The, the world didn't know that because nobody knows there's any difference. You just watch the show every day. But I was always doing stories that were a little bit more contentious, you know, um, taking on big industry stories where I felt like there was fraud taking place. For instance, when um, glyphosate, which is the, uh, the chemical in the, the herbicide Roundup that is used on 90% of our crops in America, when that, when that World Health Organization said that that was probably carcinogenic to human beings, they made that determination, which is the second highest cancer ruling there is, I decided to do a show about that and I invited Monsanto to defend their product, and they did. So they sent Donna Farmer, the head toxicologist, to defend Roundup, and I brought in a GMO activist and had a very heated debate on the subject. So those were the types of things I was doing on The Doctors that was a little bit outside of your usual daytime talk. Uh, I guess because I grew up with 60 Minutes, I liked that investigative quality, and so it sort of brought that to daytime talk. Well, while, because of that, I had a lot of different sources, and one of them was a scientist that I did a show with that said to me when we work on this show, you know, you may not want to have me on your show because I'm considered a quack when you look me up online. I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, I'm one of these doctors that believes that vaccines cause autism. I said, oh, well, this show has nothing, this story we're doing has nothing to do with that. He says, yeah, but I don't want to undermine the credibility. I said, don't worry about that. That's my problem. I, I like what you're doing here, and you're part of this story. And so we went forward. But he said to me, you know, would you ever, you know, do a story about autism and vaccines? I said, well, you know, though I see a lot of people writing into the show about that issue, saying the vaccine caused their child's, you know, different disabilities, we're pretty set on the doctors that vaccines don't cause autism, that they're safe and effective. I said, but I will say this. I'm always interested in a good story. And if something big happens in that space, let me know. I mean, I'll, I mean I'll, I'll see what I can do. So a year later, he reached out to me and said, remember when you said if something big was going to happen in this vaccine autism discussion, I should let you know. I said, yeah. He says, well, there's a whistleblower that's going to come forward inside the CDC and tell the world that they're committing scientific fraud in the vaccine safety studies. Uh, his name is Dr. William Thompson. And basically, you know, he is saying that they committed scientific fraud, especially on the MMR autism study they did at the CDC between 2000 and 2004. So I didn't see any evidence of this, but this was a good scientist. I'd worked with him before. I said, well, let me see what I can do. And I pitched it to my executive producers. They didn't want to go near the story. It was an attack on the CDC. We'd be saying that essentially our own regulatory agency was committing fraud, which is a huge statement. And also that Merck, a, a company that you know, is a sponsor on the doctors. I mean, we're sponsored by a lot of medical uh, products. Uh, they didn't want to attack a sponsor like that. And so I, I, the, the story went nowhere. But it, it stayed with me, and I continued to pursue that. And ultimately, within the year, I ended up uh, teaming up with Dr. Andrew Wakefield and making a documentary about Dr. William Thompson, the whistleblower, called Vaxxed. And that film, Vaxxed, from cover-up to catastrophe, was uh, uh, like a, a meteoric, um, I guess you could call it a cult hit. It, it, 
it you know rocked the world and a lot of people you know credit that film with igniting this movement against medical tyranny um and so it predated covid but the what i realized in working that film is we're in trouble the pharmaceutical industry and the cdc and the fda are all working with each other not protecting us we're not being protected we're in danger and so that really led me into a deeper investigation so that film was a hit all around the world i traveled the country for a year um, with that film, we bought a bus that said Vaxxed on the side of it, and people started signing their names. We have thousands and thousands of names of children who have died, children been injured, you know, uh, adults that have been injured right after the vaccination. So it was a traveling memorial. We started interviewing everyone that saw the film that wanted to tell their own personal story, which ended up being thousands of stories. And, you know, the unique thing for me is I, I remember the third uh, screening. Now, we had gotten kicked out of Tribeca Film Festival, which was what really blew us up in the news. It was headlines all over the world that, you know, this film that was going to get babies killed somehow got into Tribeca, and then they turned on us and kicked it out. It was the greatest free press you could ever dream of, literally talked about on every major news station. But ultimately, we got a screening in New York, and, um, and the third time it screened, there was a line down the block, and I was asking myself, I wonder who's coming out to see this film? I mean, there is a, we are sold out of every performance we have, multiple theaters within a week. And uh, so at the Q&A afterwards, I just said, you know, I'm just, would everyone that has a vaccine-injured child please stand up? And three-quarters of the room stood up. Um, and it was shocking. The, I felt like the oxygen was sucked out of the room. I felt like I'd been punched in the chest because even though I had made a documentary about this issue of autism and the MMR vaccine, I knew there was a problem. I interviewed, you know, maybe a half a dozen different families and their stories. I didn't know that if you had a room full of people watching this film, 100 people, 75 of them, had an injured child at home. And that ended up being the case every screening, every night, three quarters of the audience standing up. And I started realizing, my God, there is an ocean of injury out there. And these people, we're all being told that this story is, is rare, that it doesn't exist, or they're lying. And as I started interviewing these families, it was so clear that these were not liars. These were people, lawyers, doctors, scientists, you know, mathematicians, all telling a similar story, but with unique elements. And that's when I said, I gotta do, I gotta go deeper. I gotta understand our whole vaccine program. How did we decide these products were safe? When did we come up with this term safe and effective? So I started my nonprofit, the Informed Consent Action Network. I teamed up with what I think will be, you know, go down in history as one of the greatest constitutional lawyers that has ever lived in Aaron Siri. We started suing the government because we realized early on that the vaccine program is totally protected from liability. You cannot sue the manufacturer if a vaccine injures you. You can sue for a drug, Vioxx or talcum powder, all these things that pay out billions of dollars in lawsuits for having lied about safety. That's something you can't do with a vaccine. So if they're lying about the safety, there's no way to find out because only in a courtroom do you get discovery, do you get to see their internal emails. If anyone's ever looked into the pharmaceutical lawsuit, you'll see that that's critical to winning these cases. We have to prove you always knew in terms of talcum powder, they always knew there was asbestos in it. There was no way to keep the asbestos out of it. So when they had Johnson & Johnson's talcum powder and the shower to shower each day uh, uh, female products, they knew people were sprinkling asbestos all over their babies and their naked bodies. It's that type of thing that you only find out if you can get their internal emails and we couldn't get that. So we decided, well, who took on the liability? The government of the United States. We're gonna start suing them. And so we've won lawsuits in this arena uh, against the National Institute of Health, CDC, FDA, Health and Human Services. Um, I've sat in, in meetings across from Tony Fauci. Uh, we are litigious. We are, I think, the most successful nonprofit when it comes to suing in this space and winning lawsuits. We uh, have won civil cases. We stopped the law in Washington, D.C. that was going to allow children to decide to be vaccinated without parental consent. So 
That's part of what we do. And then in order for the world to know what we were discovering through our lawsuits, I started my own talk show since that's my background. And that's The High Wire at thehighwire.com. Uh, we started with a few hundred people watching it in the closet where we started it. And now we have between five and seven million people visiting our website every week and growing. And so it's been a spectacular ride. And I would say to sum all that up, I think I'm the only journalist that I know of in the world that ever spent five years of their career investigating really one product uh, and one word. Uh, we looked at vaccines. We didn't look at efficacy. We were focused on safety. How do they decide they were safe? I have an international science team, uh, and we have read every trial that ever exists, and I can tell you there has never been a proper safety trial any of the childhood vaccines we give our kids in America and around the world. And we can get into more details on any part of that that you want to cover. It's a pretty long opening, but it's been a wild ride for the last six years of my life. Well, I think it's an important story. The background is so interesting coming from, you know, on a, from the doctors yeah. and uh, now going after uh, kind of that same industry uh, in a completely different way. So it's, it's interesting because you and I have some similarities in terms of how we were raised by our parents. We've talked about that before mm -hmm. and uh, maybe had a little bit more of a healthy skepticism towards uh, yes. some of the medical practices and things like that. But, you know, the, what we've learned, I think, over the last several years, well, the last two, two and a half years with COVID, yeah. and what I think is kind of shocking, and I'm really curious your opinion on this, is that the the propaganda, as I call it, which I don't know a better word for it, that's been kind of shoved down our throats over the last couple of years, there are there's a really high percentage of people, it seems to me, that are regurgitating. They can't handle having it shoved down their throats anymore. And it, do you feel like that's the new audience that you've found over the last couple of years? Because I know the high wire's gone like this over, yes. since COVID started, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, COVID was a gift to the conversation about vaccinations. I mean, I, I, I say that cautiously because I think it may cause the largest, you know, um, death rate, certainly of any vaccine, potentially any pharmaceutical product. And it may be one of the greatest catastrophic scientific blunders of all times. But for us, we had been fighting legal cases, as I said. We were pushing the needle. Everyone that was watching the show was just watching our investigation into the childhood vaccine program. When the COVID pandemic came along and they, I suddenly saw this warp speed by Donald Trump of the COVID vaccine, I said to my team, here we go. This is going to be a gift for us because the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN, all of those have been attacking me, my show, The High Wire, saying we were spreading misinformation by saying that vaccines had not been through a proper safety trial. Let me be perfectly clear on what I mean. And I say this, and anyone can bring a lawsuit against me for defamation if I'm wrong. I know I'm not because I've heard it from Tony Fauci's own mouth. We have never done a double-blind placebo study, which is the gold standard of safety for pharmaceutical products, using a placebo. In this case, a placebo would have been a saline injection. We never did that type of safety trial, which is the only safety trial there is for any of the 16 vaccines that we give our children in the licensing phase. Now, I have proved that the world, everyone in science that is in that business should know that I'm right. Uh, but the New York Times was saying we were lying. And so I said, here we go. They're going to try to make COVID under a microscope. And we will be a part of that microscope. And now the world will watch them do it all over again. They're going to watch how they don't do a proper long-term safety trial. And this is going to be a very dangerous product because, as we reported on our show, a year as soon as they were announcing the warp speed of this vaccine, we were reporting that every attempt at a coronavirus vaccine over the previous 20 years um, had ended in catastrophic failure. Now, to put this in context, since the early 2000s, when we first had the SARS coronavirus that scared us, it was very deadly, it didn't spread as far as we thought, 
Um, but after that, it was clear. Then MERS came along, the, the Mediterranean version of that same uh, coronavirus, you know, a different variant, also very scary. The pharmaceutical companies decided, let's start working on a coronavirus vaccine. This could be very lucrative. And so they did. What people didn't know if they were watching CNN, but did know if you're watching The High Wire, Every single attempt at one of those vaccines over 20 years was a failure, and here's what happened. They would create the vaccine. They would either use rats or mice or macaque, monkeys, and even cats, and they would inject the product into the animal. You could say it was safe because the product didn't affect the animal immediately. We have no, long, no idea if it had a long-term safety track record, but they said, look, they didn't die when they gave us the injection. We're off to a good start. Then they would draw the blood and see that there was robust antibody production. And so at that point, and I would guess in every one of these trials, you have scientists clinking champagne glasses thinking they're about to be millionaires. But animal trials go one step further than human trials usually do based on, based on ethical considerations. And it's called a challenge study. With animals, they do a challenge study where they would take these cats or take these macaque monkeys and then atomize the virus or spray the virus, SARS coronavirus, in this case SARS-CoV-2, uh, they would spray it up the nostrils of the animals. And what happened was really shocking. And there's a great video we've played multiple times on our show where Dr. Peter Hotez, a vaccine proponent who had also been trying to make a coronavirus vaccine, explained that every time we did this trial, we had a paradoxical effect where the vaccine seemed to enhance the disease. It helped the virus uh, infect the cells more and led to death in almost every occasion. It certainly made uh, this, the seriousness of the illness worse. And that was not in one of the attempts or five of the attempts, literally every single attempt. So when we saw them rushing this vaccine into human beings, there are actually animal studies that have warnings that say, do not move forward with human trials. We have not figured out this problem that they were calling antibody dependent enhancement. So we pointed that out. And so I said, if they skip out of these safety trials early and don't overcome this deadly side effect, then the world will know the truth. And that's exactly what they did, right? They did exactly what we predicted. Um, because I have watched and had studied how this game was played on every other vaccine, it looked like the high wire was psychic. People were mind blown. They're mind blown to this day. I just did a show last week when they approved the COVID vaccine for the childhood schedule, looking back at what we knew. And the big news, you know, as of last week was that the, one of the presidents at Pfizer appeared before the European Union. And when asked, did you ever test the COVID vaccine to see if it could stop transmission? which would be the only role a vaccine should have. They said they never tested for that. That is blown up all over the world. I showed last week on our show that we told you that they hadn't tested for transmission one day before it ever got emergency use authorization. We had seen all the science and said, they didn't test for transmission. They have no idea if this vaccine is going to stop your infection. And lo and behold, it never did, right? Everyone that got the vaccine has gotten sick. But, you know, all through that, we've been, they've been saying we're spreading misinformation. I'm about to demand a formal apology from every news agency that ever described what we were doing as misinformation because we got it right. And as you pointed out, all you can describe is the news that almost everybody else watched, if you're watching mainstream news, was straight up propaganda. It was written by the pharmaceutical companies themselves. The CDC was following the, the pharmaceutical script. And now we find ourselves in a terrifying realization that our CDC is no longer a regulatory agency that's protecting people. It's protecting the pharmaceutical industry. And I believe you are watching the, the end of the CDC. The vote last week to put this COVID vaccine on the childhood schedule will mark the beginning of the end. Now I think that the majority of the nation are against the CDC and their recommendations. So a lot has changed over the last couple of years. Absolutely. And, and it's really been interesting to watch because it feels like they just keep putting all their cards up on the table for us to see. And then more and more people are seeing them and, and really waking up to this fact. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people didn't wake up to it until vaccine injury or, uh, you know, hospitalization with COVID and, and all of the crazy stuff that's going on in hospitals. Yeah. So that episode last week, Dell, was, I think, maybe one of the most important episodes you've ever produced. I was, it's crazy because I've been paying attention to this very, very closely through, from the very start, uh, as you have, and yet 
listening to the and, and I really want you to get into this uh, what's happening in Europe versus what's yeah. happening in America for a minute listening to the questions in Europe and the answers that were given it's, as much as I don't think I can get shocked anymore I keep becoming <laughs> I keep getting more and more surprised at just how transparent this whole thing is and yeah. and being able to really see you know the powers that be I guess doing their work so there's a couple of things that I want to make sure we get into so we don't run okay. out of time here. So you mentioned the ASIP um, unanimous decision to place the COVID vax in the childhood schedule. First off, if you don't mind just explaining what that actually means for parents yeah. and children. Well, there's a, there's a bunch of things that, um, you know, we're sort of very proud of. The, no one knew about the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ASIP. This is the committee that um, decides whether to recommend that a vaccine be put on the childhood schedule at the CDC or the adult schedule uh, at the CDC. And so it was a few years ago, I would say about four years ago now, um, I discussed with our attorney, Aaron Siri, and he we were saying, you know, he brought it to my attention. You know, there's this committee and it's an open hearing. It's open to the public. This is where it's all starting. We should go nip this in the bud. There's also public testimony. You can step up to a microphone. So it was just me and Aaron Siri and my manager, Jimmy, the first time we went to that meeting. Then I brought everything we learned. Uh, we had video of what had been said. Some really egregious votes had taken place. And so we made fun of them and how ridiculous the system was and how scary it was. Uh, and then the next time there was 15 people that showed up with me and 10 of them got up on the microphone to speak. And then the next meeting, there was 50 people, um, you know, by, you know, before COVID, right before COVID started, we had over 100 people in attendance. They had to build a whole new section that was roped off for all of us that were against uh, the propaganda of the vaccine program. So that was the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice meetings. So there's really, you have to understand, you know, I know I have long-winded answers, but I really want people to understand that the science is not simple. We can't fit this on bumper stickers, but here's the process for a vaccine. The first thing a vaccine needs to do has to be approved for safety, supposedly. Now, that is a group called VRBAC. Um, that's the Vaccine-Related Biologics uh, and something committee. I, I forget what all those letters stand for, but VRBAC is basically the ASIP of FDA. And so they give their recommendation. They look at all the science and the trials that have taken place, and they say to the FDA, we believe this should be approved for FDA approval. And then I would say almost 100% of the time, the FDA takes that and they do approve it and it becomes FDA approved. Uh, a, pro a process that has not happened for most of the COVID vaccines and for none of the COVID vaccines for children, by the way. So we just put an unapproved, uh, un-FDA approved product on the childhood schedule last week for the first time that I know of. But moving on, Verback then approves it to the FDA. Now it goes over to the CDC and that's where ACIP takes it. They look at all the science and the trials and, and what FDA had ruled and they decide whether this is just going to be a product you can buy or it's going to be one that they actually recommend to put on the schedule. And once it goes on the schedule, now it has the ability to be to achieve that sort of um, liability protection comes with being on the schedule and also be a part of the government mandate. The government can now mandate it, which means the government can pay for it in, in the um, Vaccines for Children program, and it basically is used to mandate that you can't go to school without it. Now, here's what people need to know. Um, there is obvious concern that now that the CDC has added it to the childhood schedule, that we will probably see within the next year, uh, you cannot get into school if you don't receive this vaccine. But each state still uh, votes in what vaccines of the schedule will be needed um, or, or required in that state's schools. I believe that private schools can step out and make their own vote. Um, and perhaps even some counties may differ from the state, but it still has to be, the CDC does not have jurisdiction, just to be clear, over schools. Uh, the state government does, and so that's where that decision will be made if it's mandated. So 
there's still time for people in the different states. If you're in California, I would get right on this immediately. If you're in New York, Mississippi, places that have been very pro-vaccine, you want to immediately start telling your politicians, if you vote to put that on the schedule, allow that on the schedule, I'm never voting for you again. So we have to get involved now. So to be clear, it's on the schedule. Uh, it's there, recommended by the CDC. It's the first time that I've ever seen a non-FDA approved uh, product on that schedule. Um, it does not necessarily mean it will be mandated to go to school, but we can imagine probably half the states uh, could make that move very quickly. But there's also a huge pushback by a large percentage. I'm not sure what the numbers are. We will be talking on about it this Thursday on our show on the high wire. How many states are actually pushing back saying never will that vaccine be mandated onto our school schedule? So it's creating a real divide in this country as we speak. Thank goodness. Uh, hopefully the yes. local leaders uh, figure that out for sure. So it is really interesting, the timing. And, and I don't know if you know off the top of your head, but the episode that you did last week, what do you know what number that was? Because I want everybody I believe that to was number 290, that. like 290 was the okay, episode. 290. All right. Yeah. So if you're listening, go back and listen to that. Watch that. There's some really incredible information in there that you absolutely need to hear. Uh, so as far as the COVID vaccine for kids, let's just jump into that really quickly. Yeah. Let's, I think most people listening to Vitality Radio already know where I'm at on this thing. I've talked about it so much. But when we talk about kids and this particular vaccine, uh, there, there's such a, an incredible disconnect because we don't have any, there's no compelling reason for a child to ever receive this vaccine, even if it worked. Am I am I overstating that? No, you are not overstating that. Let's be let's just I like to talk numbers. I'm a little better at numbers on my show because I have a team firing my slides where I can read right off of them. But let me do my best to come as close to the actual numbers. And, and you can find these at thehighwire.com. Uh, we know from multiple studies done by John Ioannidis, who is considered to be the world's greatest epidemiologist. He's looked at the trial, the studies and the numbers, crunching them from all around the world. He determined that the actual fatality risk, the, you know, the infection fatality risk, the IFR for children, meaning if they catch COVID, what are the chances they will die is 0.0002% for children zero to 18 years old. So let's really put that in perspective. I know a lot of us are a long ways from math, but if you were going to round up or down at 0.0002, what does that get rounded to? Clearly that's a zero to the hundredth power. I mean, it's really a zero. So the ultimate, the risk of your child dying from COVID is zero. So now we have to look at why are we giving them a product? Now we're told you're giving them the product in order to protect grandpa, right? That's how they said it. Like, well, your child can't go and visit grandma and grandpa who may be immune suppressed. Maybe they couldn't get the vaccine. That's why they vaccinate. It's also been the argument they always make for vaccines in school in order to protect those schoolmates that are maybe going through chemo or have autoimmune diseases that they cannot be vaccinated themselves because their immune systems can't handle it. We vaccinate to create herd immunity. This is a term that we've heard. Well, now it is official and it has been stated that the COVID vaccine, as I said, we knew from day one, does not stop transmission. Let me say that again. The COVID vaccine does not stop transmission. In fact, what we're seeing is what we see called negative efficacy, which for some reason, which we will still have to understand, but based on the large numbers that we see all around the world, people that get the vaccine, especially after about 30 days or 60 days, they now get infected more than if they had never gotten the vaccine. So the vaccine may be doing what we saw in those animal trials enhancing the infectiousness of the disease. So the vaccine has a problem right there. It's not only not protecting your neighbor, it is making you more likely to be infected, which means you're more likely to carry it and shed it to other people. So the whole reason for vaccinating a kid now is out the door. You're not protecting grandma, you're not protecting anybody. So all we're left with is we're going to give you this product for no reason whatsoever. It better be as safe as water because there's no reason to give it to them anyway. And it's it's not. 
what we see are known cases of especially myocarditis and periocarditis or myopericarditis in children, especially boys. This is the swelling of the heart. Um, and these are issues that when we looked at studies out of Israel, and by the way, we didn't cherry pick those studies. We've been watching CDC meetings where they looked at the graphs coming out of Israel. And what you will see is, for instance, in an age group, let's I think it's like one to eight years old, where you would expect to have one to four cases amongst the, 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 the size of the control group they were looking at. Uh, I'm going to be really close here. I'm not that far off, but it might be just one number or two off. But in, in the one to eight years old, they expected around one to four cases of myocarditis. That's the background rate. That's how often would uh, this large group of children see myocarditis in a natural setting without any products involved, one to four. Instead, there was something like 117 after vaccination. So you've increased, you know, by incredible numbers to go from one to four to 117. Then you look at the older age group, like 12 to 16 or 18, and it's like they expect zero to six, and there's 200 and something cases of myocarditis. So what we see is a definite correlation. It has been uh, written about and studied all around the world. The numbers are alarming. A study out of Thailand found out of 300 kids that were observed from a couple of different schools there that 29% of them had some form of a heart issue after vaccinations, the most serious being myocarditis, and there was a couple of cases hospitalized in that group. These are not one in a million injuries, like we're told. If out of 300 kids, 29% of them are either showing troponin levels, which shows that they're on the verge of having a heart issue or swelling the heart itself. So all of this is known by the CDC. So now let's look at, because all this comes down to a risk-reward ratio, right? I'm not telling anybody, I'm not trying to eradicate vaccines from the planet. I'm trying to get proper safety trials done, and I'm trying to get the CDC to act responsibly, which is you should be doing a proper risk-reward ratio. There is no reward in that this vaccine doesn't protect anybody else. There's no reward and it doesn't protect the children because they were never at risk. They have a 0.0002% risk. So then the, is what is the risk? There's a very known high risk. In fact, uh, the Surgeon General of Florida has just come out against the COVID vaccine for young men throughout that state and children saying they saw an 84 percent uh, rise in relative risk for myocarditis amongst uh, uh, men or young men 0 to 18 years old. 84% increased risk. Those are known numbers. So when the CDC votes to add this vaccine to the program, it will go down. And I assure you, I played on my show, never forget the faces that voted for that. The 15 people that voted 15 to 0 just made the greatest uh, catastrophic scientific error of all times, and I think it's proof that your CDC no longer works for you. They are clearly just puppets for Pfizer and Moderna uh, and the other you know, companies that are controlling them. It's horrible. It is horrible, and it's horrible, too, because what you're talking about, uh, as far as the numbers we have so far with you know one vaccine or, or, or two jabs of the same Yes. Uh, the same series. And it's been approved for every year for 18 years, uh, as I understand it, by ASIP. So we don't even know what that looks like the second year, the third year, the fourth year, and so on and Correct. so forth. But That's it, right. it, it, it can't get better. No. And and if you're you know, if you've asked the question, I mean, it's weird how Facebook has us in bubbles. But every day I'm watching three or four students collapsing with heart attacks and dying at high schools around this country. I don't ever remember children dying of heart attacks. There's now even, I think they took it down, but there was a hospital, I believe it was in Illinois or, or Michigan or something, that put out an ad saying, did you know that your you know, seven-year-old daughter could have a heart attack? Heart attacks in children is a real problem. Here are the risk signs. We never saw ads like that before this vaccine. You know, and we're, we're, here, we're seeing articles written, drinking hot tea can cause heart attacks. You know, watching football games can cause heart attacks. We we're normalizing an insane rise in heart attacks that's happening all around the world. We've documented, I think there's over a thousand soccer players and athletes that have collapsed face
biggest forward on the field of play inside of the last two years. And I made a video about that. New York Times reaches out every time we put something like that out and says, have you proved that every one of those people got a vaccine? I said, I don't know. Have you proved that none of them did? And I said, let me be clear. I'm not saying the vaccine is causing every one of these heart attacks. But what I am asking my audience is, when was the last year you remember seeing an athlete die of a heart attack while playing in the field? When was the last year you remember a, a, a rock singer collapsing in the middle of their own concert and dying of a heart attack? All right, do you remember two happening the same year? How about five? How about 10? How about 50? How about 100? How about 1,000? Because that's what's going on right now. We are looking at over, you know, thousands of stories of people collapsing with heart attacks, and every one of them calls it sudden adult death syndrome, and no one around them would have described them as sick at all, saying they were completely healthy. It was really shocking. Well, we were promised a new normal by Joe Biden and by Jen Psaki and by the World Economic Forum. And my God, we are living in that new normal, a new normal where children and healthy athletes die of heart attacks while, you know, performing the same things they did through centuries and not dying. Yeah, certainly not the new normal they promised. So with the with the ASIP thing, what are what are you doing uh, with ICANN in terms of trying to fight this decision? Well, I mean, so what we do in those uh, moments is our legal team, which is a huge team now, is pouring over every part of what an ASIP vote means. Can you vote in a product that didn't have FDA approval? I mean, all of those things. We're trying to find a hole or a chink in the armor, if you will, of this program. Meanwhile, what I can, my nonprofit has promised, and there's a whole article written um, in Epoch Times about the fact that I just told our law firm, we will fight. I am funding the fight in every single state that they attempt to mandate this vaccine for children to go to school. We will immediately bring charges uh, to, to stop that, that uh, decision. And so we're making a huge financial commitment to fight uh, in courtrooms around this country to make sure that no child is forcibly injected with this experimental product that is proven to be so damaging to so many people. Excellent. On the same topic, and then we'll jump to another one. Uh, in, in Europe, things are shifting dramatically. And again, if you look at episode 290 of The High Wire, you'll, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. But yeah. uh, there, were, there was a, a committee that was uh, called to ask questions of Pfizer. I believe uh, the Pfizer president decided not to show up and sent someone else uh, yeah. to, to answer the questions. But uh, what, are you, what do people need to know about what happened there? Well, first of all, you're right. Please just go type in thehighwire.com when we're done here and watch the episode that's sitting right on our main screen. It was last week's episode. If you have any questions at all about the COVID vaccine, we made that show specifically to be a time capsule so they would understand the journey that vaccine had and what they knew when they voted for it. But what's happening in Europe, which is what we covered last week, is phenomenal. You had essentially, um, like we have congressional hearings here, they had hearings for the European Union, and they put together a committee to ask certain questions of, the, of the CEO, actually, Alex Borla of Pfizer. Come on down. We got some questions about what the contract was. Why are we not seeing a product? Why is it not stopping transmission? Will we promise that it would stop transmission? If it's not stopping transmission, why are we still paying for it? And did we get what we you know, paid for? I mean, those are the types of questions. Well, Alex Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, refused to show up instead. And I think he was signed to show up and then backed out and sent an, another president, a very high-ranking Pfizer official um, to answer those questions. And when asked by a parliamentary member um, of the European Union, uh, Roos uh, is his last name, he said, I would like your honest answer. Before this was marketed to the public for, through the emergency use authorization, and before acquiring emergency use authorization, did Pfizer ever perform a trial on the vaccine to test whether it could stop transmission? And the answer was no, we never checked for stopping transmission. And she made a statement that we made famous by making the title of our show, we were moving at the speed of science and there was no way to do that. 
Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. It's incredible that they weren't doing studies. Let me just, and I lay this out in the show, but to be clear, we all heard that there was 40,000 people in the one trial with Pfizer and 45,000 people in the trial, I mean, uh, 45 and 30,000. So huge trials. Oh, great. That should be really effective. But they didn't do what you would imagine they would do. Remember, when everyone has to remember this, because there's a lot of spin trying to change the historical memory of what we were told. What they said the danger of this virus was, was asymptomatic carriers. This is why we all had to wear masks everywhere we went, even though we felt perfectly healthy. This is why we had to be tested, even though we felt perfectly healthy. They said the majority of people are not having any symptoms at all, are catching this and walking around. Now, I also want to point out, when you're told that this vaccine is 95% effective now, at least reducing symptoms, doesn't stop transmission or infection, but it reduces your symptoms, I like to say, I thought the majority were asymptomatic carriers, meaning they had no symptoms. I'd really love to know what it feels like to have less than 0% symptoms, because that is, I mean, so all of the languaging, none of this adds up. It's so insane. But back to the point. You know, they were, you would imagine if you are making a vaccine and you're rushing it out and every government in the world is pouring billions of dollars through your door to make this vaccine and do these trials as fast as possible, the one thing they would be doing would be giving everybody that got the vaccine in the trial a PCR test once a week, right? Isn't that what we're trying to find out? We need to stop asymptomatic carriers. That's the only way they said we can open up this country. Therefore, this vaccine better stop us from being symptom, you know, asymptomatic and carrying it and spreading it. We got to stop the spread. All you would have had to do is do a PCR test on everyone in the study once a week. They never did that, which should make you suspect right up front. You would have done that. Your third grader would have done that. Why are the leading health officials in the world not doing the most obvious trial that we all know how to do? And instead, what they did was they would only do a PCR test if you developed a cough. Not if you went to the hospital, not if you died or anything. Just if you have a cough, then we PCR test you. If we PCR test you at that moment and you test positive, we say you had COVID. And so under those circumstances, they jerry-rigged this idea that uh, the, really out of the 40,000, the study was like 160 people uh, had a cough and nine of them were vaccinated and the other were unvaccinated. And that was where we got the 95% effective. It was 95% effective apparently at stopping a cough. That's all it ever did. Never stopped hospitalizations, never proved it did, never stopped deaths, none of it. Certainly never stopped transmission. Now we know that that's a fact. And then I went further into the trials. Uh, uh, um, one of the editors for the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, Peter Doshi, did a scathing article about the trials, pointing out that at the same moment they paraded this 170, 000, uh, 170 people, that was all we were going to base all of our math on before we gave this product to billions of people, they had 3,000 symptomatic people that they never tested. So something wacky went on where you said you were going to test everyone that got the cough and then we would know how well the vaccine did and half of those people in 3,000 were said to have been vaccinated. So this whole trial looks to be a fraud, which is why our lawyer, Aaron Siri has sued to see all the trial data. And that's another big lawsuit when we had. Um, that the FDA, or certainly he had, that, that one's really sponsored for a bunch of doctors that were behind it. Um, they, the FDA, our own FDA, wanted to hide that data from us for 75 years. Our FDA, not Pfizer didn't ask for 75 years. Our own FDA said the public can't have access to that for 75 years, as though it's like the, the, the J John F. Kennedy assassination. Well, we sued you know, Aaron sued and won, and all of that evidence and science will be coming out of those trials this year. I say all of this because this is what it revolves around. You have the European Union asking, so if it never stopped transmission and we locked our citizens down, we destroyed our education programs, we destroyed jobs and business and our economies. In, in, in Austria, as, as Robert Ruse, I think it's his first name, as Robert Ruse said, um, you know, in Austria, they locked unvaccinated people in their homes like they were prisoners, all because the belief was that if you were vaccinated, you couldn't spread it. Now we know they always knew that you could spread it and they hid that from the public. This is blowing up in Europe as we speak. The European Union has now formed a task force 
that is um, digging deeper, and now they're asking serious questions like, we are going to stop our promise for the $75 billion worth of mRNA vaccines that we paid for. They're only $2.5 billion into paying that off. They're asking, some of these um, uh, parliamentary uh, people are asking for that $2.5 billion back, especially facing the fact that they can't even pay their energy costs going into this year because of the Ukraine war. I don't think a lot of people in Europe like the fact that we're going to pay out nearly $100 billion for a product that never did what it promised, destroyed our careers, and now we can't pay our heat because all of our money is going to a vaccine that doesn't work. This is what's happening in the European Union, and I think it's, it's spelling the beginning of the end. It is literally explosive. And it, what the irony is that the nation, the United States of America, that's usually the beacon of light and hope and transparency, we're mandating this product that in the European Union, they're describing it as fake medicine, a fake vaccine. Here, we're mandating it on children, potentially making it uh, mandatory for a child to get into school. You couldn't have two uh, more diverse perspectives on the same product happening in the world as it is right now. And I think that uh, really goes back to exactly what you said in terms of what level of trust and faith we can have in those institutions, the FDA, the CDC, the NIH. Yeah. They've proven time and time again recently that they can't be trusted and that they do seem to align with the financial goals of pharma uh, yes. far more than they align with our, our own health care here in this country. Let me ask you another question that's pretty concerning because it goes back, uh, this goes into the censor, censorship that we saw so strongly and uh, powerfully wielded during this uh, pandemic. Uh, California on October 1st, uh, Newsom signed into law the uh, number 2098 that essentially is a gag order on doctors that don't agree with the, the narrative. Uh, what can you tell us about that and, and what might be being done legally to try and combat that? Yeah, so, I mean, there is a lawsuit that's been brought by uh, a great doctor, a pediatrician in California, uh, Jeff Barkey, Dr. Jeff Barkey, and, um, and several others. I'm trying to remember uh, some of the other individuals. Uh, they're bringing a lawsuit against this. Uh, this should be terrifying to everyone in America. Uh, we have, and, and, and by the way, I, no matter what I say, what it seems like I'm saying, I'm, I'm a fan of medicine and science. That is what I practice on the doctor's television show. I still am. I believe in the scientific method. I want regulatory agencies that do their job. Uh, I think the CDC should probably be dismantled. We need to start over, and we got to make laws and rules that say that basically you can't work for pharma as an executive like Borla or Gottlieb and then go and become head of the CDC. And then right when you're done with that, go back into your cronies at, at uh, uh, Moderna or Pfizer, for instance, like we're seeing with these guys. That revolving door creates a serious problem. Now you have people running your regulatory agency that technically are being bookended by their work with pharma, meaning they're doing their bidding. It's very problematic. Now, the doctors that pointed this out, the doctors that pointed out the same thing that I've been pointing out, by the way, many of them came onto my show to say, Dell, there's a huge problem here. And we're not talking about some crazy hippie doctor, you know, in the, in the middle of uh, Sedona, Arizona or something. We're talking about Dr. Peter McCullough, the leading heart doctor in the world, been published uh, more than any living heart doctor there is. Uh, the leading ICU doctor, the most published ICU doctor in the world, Dr. Paul Merrick, has come out against this vaccine. Uh, and then I think most shockingly, literally the inventor of mRNA vaccine technology, Dr. Robert Malone, came out against this vaccine. All of these people being censored, all of them under uh, investigation by the regulatory agencies, all of them literally the top of the class around the world. And so these people in California, these doctors like Dr. Barkey that pointed out what we saw, this vaccine will not stop transmission. We're seeing real concerns with antibody dependent enhancement that we saw in the animal trials, recommending their patients, giving them true informed consent meant 
this is an untested pharmaceutical product, which is what it was. You, have, you are taking a risk when you take it. What risk? We know what happened to the animals in the animal trials with antibody-dependent enhancement. We know that in the trials they never were able to establish they could stop infection. You know, and then as the science started changing, more and more stories about blood clotting that they talked about, strange blood clotting, and thrombocytopenia, where they would both have a lack of platelets but be clotting. It was the weirdest thing, such an anomaly it could only be caused by the vaccine because we never see it happen in nature. We saw all sorts of anaphylactic reactions, Bell's palsy. If you were a doctor that made any of these statements to your patient saying, look, I'm not telling you not to take it, but I'm telling you, Here's what we know are risks that are appearing, and we have no understanding of the long-term safety because there hasn't been a long-term safety trial. If you made those statements, you are now on the verge because of this law written in by Gavin Newsom of losing your license. What does that law say? That any doctor that does not stand and state the CDC-approved information, the same CDC that lied about transmission to us, that lied about the dangers, that just approved an unapproved vaccine to be on the childhood schedule. That same CDC that had Tony Fauci now apologizing for having been wrong about the science. That CDC that had Deborah Burks out in front of cameras saying that she and you know that the vaccine was great. Now she says publicly, I always knew it didn't stop transmission. I think we overplayed our hand. So at the exact same moment that every headline is showing us that not only did our regulatory agents get it wrong, they actually were knowingly lying to us about the efficacy and the ability of this vaccine to protect us. We still have laws being passed that we can never go against that group. Doesn't matter that they've admitted themselves they were lying to us. This is really catastrophic for the future of medicine and science. And let me take it outside of COVID for a second. Because what we are seeing is the destruction of the doctor-patient relationship. Your doctor has signs a Hippocratic oath, which is to do no harm. Your doctor is not allowed by law to do something to you that might protect 100 people around you, but it could harm you, which would be the definition of a vaccine for some people that will be injured by it. They're not allowed to make that assessment. Your doctor, you were supposed to know that you were in a, in a contract that says that my best interests are the only interests on the mind of this doctor, not the interests of the hospital, not the interests of my government. My health is the only interest that this doctor has. That has just been removed. It doesn't matter the doctor wants to say to you, look, I'm looking at studies of ivermectin around the world, which is what many of these doctors did. It is showing an 80% reduction in death. You were at the eight, you're over 80 years old. I would like to, you know, prescribe ivermectin. I will tell you there is nothing else at this time. When we look back when this was happening with COVID, there is no other product for you. We don't have anything else to give you. So I can only send you home with nothing or I would like to try ivermectin because the trials around the world are showing 80% effectiveness. And by the way, ivermectin won the Nobel Prize, not for veterinary medicine, as the news said, but for human medicine. And it happens to be one of the safest medicines we have ever seen in that it has almost no cross-reactive issues with any other drug. This has just fallen apart for Paxlovid. Two weeks ago, we now find the product they did allow us to use, you know, a year later, Paxlovid has now critical problems with cross-reaction with uh, statins and hypertension drugs. And so it's a very bad drug. So all of this to say, as a doctor, don't you want your doctor to be able to say, hey, I'm looking at trials around the world. I'm doing my own investigation. We're in the middle of a pandemic that our own government is saying they don't know anything about. But I'm telling you the trials that I believe this is a very safe medicine. I can show you the track record of it. It's used for a lot of different things. This would be an off-label usage. But if you would like to, I think you should try it. That was made illegal. That doctor now will lose her license for having done that. Even though everyone, in, in terms of Dr. Paul Merrick, he had 50% of the amount of death in his ICU as every other ICU doctor in his own hospital and compared to around the world until they took ivermectin and other tools he was using away from him. And he says on a Senate hearing stand with tears in his eyes, my own hospital forced me to watch my patients die when I had been saving them all the way up until that moment. I've also interviewed him. That's a great interview. Just type in Dr. Paul Merrick at the Highwire 
These are really scary times. And by the way, if medicine and if doctors are going to be reduced, do you know how many drugs we take as off-label usage that never get approved there because the, the, no one wants to spend $100 million on a randomized control trial, but there's so much evidence they work? If you're going to take that away from doctors, do you know how many drugs disappear? And if you are going to have guys like Tony Fauci and bureaucrats inside of Washington dictating how your doctor treats you, then you essentially, and I don't know why any doctor is putting up with this, we are turning doctors into kiosks. If a doctor is only there to paint by numbers, meaning I'm only going to prescribe you with what exactly the bureaucrat at NIH has said every hospital has to abide by, then why would you ever get a second opinion? There is going to be no second opinion in medicine. They're all going to have the same opinion, which is type in the numbers at the kiosk. This is I'm having a difficulty breathing, blah, blah, blah. This is it. Oh, we're going to put you on a remdesivir, you know, which causes kidney failure and a ventilator. And that kills nine out of 10 people. Sorry, that's all we know how to do for you because that's what the NIH is making us do. That's what happened during COVID. I believe doctors murdered people, uh, mostly not knowing it, but over time when you keep killing patients with what appears to be a bad cold, you should really start to question your program. And when the guy that was having a 50% better success rate than you are in your own hospital loses his job, I think it's time to start asking appropriate questions. And if you didn't, you're going to be just like those doctors we tried in the Nuremberg trials uh, in Nazi Germany that were saying, hey, I was just doing what I was told. Yeah, that didn't work for them, and it's not going to work for all the doctors and nurses that murdered uh, over a million people, I think, now in the United States of America with the treatments that were approved. We can't let this happen. We can't have bureaucrats getting between our doctor and our health. This is a conversation with a knowledgeable person, and I'm knowledgeable too. I want to be able to pick their brain, and I want to know that they are allowed to speak freely about what they are seeing in the world. And guess what? If they tell me they like ivermectin and I don't like that idea, that's when I get a second opinion and leave, say I'm not into that. And if my neighbor lives and I die and they got the ivermectin, maybe my wife will say, you know what, my husband didn't listen, but I'm going back to the guy that recommended ivermectin. This is how science gets advanced. How does science advance if doctors aren't allowed to use the things that they think they, that work? And why would these doctors be risking their careers, which so many of these beautiful medical practitioners did, they risked their careers to deliver hydroxychloroquine when it was essentially made illegal, to deliver ivermectin and budesonide and vitamin D, for God's sakes, was essentially being outlawed in hospitals, even though we knew that if you had a level of 50 uh, units of vitamin D in your bloodstream, the, the science showed us you could not die. You could not be hospitalized for COVID. No one hospitalized had 50 or better units of vitamin D in their bloodstream. Vitamin D, so important. So all of these things, we are looking at the dark ages of medicine right now, a regression into a space in medicine that we've only seen delivered by dictatorships and communist uh, nations. Uh, we need to stop this, and, and Governor Newsom just signed in one of the worst laws, and I think he just ensured that we will never allow him to be president. He's too dangerous, and he's too owned by pharmaceutical companies to make a decision like this. Yeah, I certainly hope that that's the case. And, yeah, I, I, to me, there's so much stuff to be so uh, concerned about in the situation yeah. that we find ourselves in, but I, to me, censorship is – Probably number one. Uh, they silence enough voices, then eventually we uh, we don't have that option. And I love the analogy of turning your doctor into a kiosk. I think that's yeah. exactly right. So yeah. I, I need to let you go. I want you to answer yeah. one more question for me, sure. if you don't mind, Dell. And that is, what with all that's going on, you know, we just talked about the the childhood schedule and and them approving a, a emergency use drug that doesn't work for the childhood schedule. We talked about the gag order in California for doctors, and yet I heard you speak a few weeks ago, and you told all of us in the audience that you believe we are winning. Yes. Can you explain why you think that is? Well, I mean, look, there's things that you look at for markers. For instance, my audience, we had. Uh, prior to COVID, I mean, we had been growing. We started, as I said, with a couple hundred people watching the show. We were getting somewhere around, you know, 200,000 views for a good show prior to COVID. Through COVID, 
the world watched what I'd been saying. They watched how a product was rushed on the market, was rushed into them, was forced on them by a government that said it was a, you know, that th these were, you know, as a free nation. They recognized, I mean, the people that recognized, wait a minute, this is my body. Even if I want this product, I hate the idea that you're telling me I can't go to work unless I get it. You're going to take away my job. You're going to take away my education. You're going to take these things away. I think it scared a lot of people and started feeling like some sort of dystopian future. And so because of that, many people woke up faster than we could have dreamed. So we went from 250,000, which we had reached in about, you know, in about a three-year span of the show, in two years that grew to five to seven million viewers uh, hitting our website every week. So that type of expansion shows you, you know, just how this message changed the world. Then there's things that I look at that even though we had a massive propaganda campaign, they said it was 95% effective, but Fauci said he wanted between 85 and 95% of the population uh, vaccinated in order to achieve herd immunity. Now, of course, that was all going to be a lie because if it doesn't stop infection, you could never reach herd immunity. But I'm happy to say that it appears based on the CDC numbers, as far as we can tell, and I think there's a lot of fudging going on, and there's a lot of fake vaccine cards out there, people that have doctors that are lying, all sorts of stuff. But it looks like at least 30% of our country rejected this vaccine. So that means with the $10 billion propaganda campaign that, that was funded by our government, a 24-hour news site, uh, cycle on every single news station owned by pharma, funded by the pharma side of our government, that 30% of our country was not brainwashed to get this vaccine even more so. So that means you have, you have more than just an annoying little subgroup of people. 30% is a voting body. I will also say when I got in this conversation based on that, when I would show up to state capitals, we would have maybe 250 people show up on a good day to go in and march and to protest, you know, maybe the removal of a religious exemption. Now when I go to these events, there's somewhere between two and 10,000 people or 40,000 people that showed up when we were in Washington, D.C., and 25,000 people in Los Angeles. Those numbers show you that people are waking up. And at both of those large events, we had over 20 political people running for political office, senators and congressmen, begging to get onto our stage, meaning now even politicians recognize that I am better off being aligned with what used to be called anti-vaxxers than I am being against them. I believe this will win me more votes and get me elected. That is a sign that we have totally moved the needle when just five years ago, Every politician at best would have a silent, you know, anonymous conversation with you if you promise not to tell anybody. Now they're begging to get on the stages where we speak. And I think the most telling uh, poll that we've seen was out of Iowa just uh, two months ago. They polled Iowa voters, you know, how many believe that the childhood vaccine program, not just COVID, the childhood vaccine program should be mandated on children only 34% of Iowa voters believe that that vaccine program should be forced on children or mandated. That's that was down from 59%, which was the majority before COVID. It is now a minority perspective. And then I would say lastly, when we look at the vaccine for children, I think between the age of two and five, only 4% of parents have gotten that for their kids. When we look at the booster shot, which is all the people, think of that, you know, 70% that got vaccinated. Remember, of the 70% that got vaccinated, we should ask ourselves how many of them did it under duress? Did it, you know, kicking and screaming, but it was the only way to hold on to their job, their only way to stay in school. I would guess that 20%, you know, at least 20% probably did it because they're forced. So we may be near 50% anyway, but now when we look at the booster shot, we are saying, you know, 30% at most have received the recommended booster shot. That means amongst the believers in the vaccine program, 70% of them are now turning their backs on the CDC. That is a win in every single column we have ever looked at this conversation in. And now with this COVID mandate on children, I believe if you polled parents across America, the majority would say over my dead body, are you mandating that vaccine for my kid to go to school? I'll pull them out of school or I will sue. And so 
We are in now what I would say is nearing a majority position when it comes to a demand on more transparency for vaccine safety, more proof of vaccine safety. We're all going to be demanding proof of vaccine uh, efficacy, and that is a good thing. And go to our nonprofit if you want to fund the lawsuits to make sure all of that is happening. So you can go to ICanDecide.org. That's our nonprofit. Or TheHighWire.com. You can donate there. And TheHighWire.com is where you can see all of this evidence and the world-renowned scientists that have handed to me on my show. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dell. And I will say, I don't trust a lot of uh, nonprofits. There's a lot of stuff going on. There are only a couple that I support, and ICANN is definitely one that I send uh, I send money to every every month. And I appreciate what you're doing and being a part of that. And just keep fighting the good fight because I agree. I believe we really are winning. It's hard to see when you're watching MSNBC and CNN yeah. and these places, but it's happening. Thank yeah, you so much, Dale. I appreciate your time and your <laughs> and your effort and uh, your dynamic voice in this area. And thank you for joining me on Vitality Radio. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for, thanks for being brave enough to cover this topic. I think it's the most important issue of our time. That was the great Dell Bigtree from the Informed Consent Action Network. Uh, you can find that website at icandecide.org. You can also go to the highwire.com. It is thehighwire.com, not highwire.com. If you want to check out that episode 290, and frankly, any of the episodes are definitely worth watching. They put a lot of time and effort into making great content, and I enjoy it every single week myself. I will link to a couple of things in the description uh, if you want to check out those websites, if you want to check out that particular show. And uh, I, I, again, encourage you to check it out. I'm such a big fan of the work that they're doing. Uh, Dell has been someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. He's been absolutely buried since this COVID stuff hit, and so it's been a challenge to get an hour of his time, but we did it, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions about anything you hear on Vitality Radio, you can always call us at Vitality Nutrition and Bountiful. That's 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. You can also follow me on Instagram, uh, at Vitality Nutrition Bountiful or at Vitality Radio are where you find me there. And uh, we'll also link to the listeners community for Vitality Radio podcast, which just broke through 300 members and is not slowing down. We'd love to have you involved over there. It's a really, really great supportive group. I think you'll really enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dell. If you have questions, reach out and we'd be more than happy to uh, answer them. Oh, and also uh, feel free to check out our website. That's one really easy way to ask questions. We do have a chat feature on our website, and it's either me or my son Bridger that will answer those questions. And uh, that's vitalitynutrition.com. Okay, I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair. our awesome music is by brian bob young support vitality radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on apple podcasts youtube or your favorite podcast source don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.